We're going to be reading from the book of John, uh, chapter 19. John, chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was a day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. Continue on with reading from John 19, verses 17 to 27. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two others on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answers, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, 
Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which said, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldier did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. The Gospel record continues. After this, to fulfill the scripture, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished! And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again another scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there.
I don't know where you've come from today or how you got here, but I want you to all leave the same way. <laughs> I want you to leave today convinced of the love of God for you. All of this stuff, all of the weight of the story, all of the solemnity, all of the historical truth of, of the divine presence offering itself up in humility for sinners, for the Lord's table, for eating the bread and the drink, all of it used and combined to convince hearts that can be doubtful, skeptical, unbelieving, If you don't leave with anything else today, this is what I want you to get. To be convinced of the love of God for you. So I'm going to read a passage of scripture. I'm going to introduce the bread in a few moments. And then Andrew's going to come and read some more scripture. And he'll introduce the cup. Okay? Romans 9, 5, verses 6 through 9 says this. While we were still weak... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. These words are directed to the bread as we prepare to eat together. This table is a moment of profound intimacy between God and his people. Because it deals with a question of the heart that is very central to our, our identity. And that question of the heart that is so central to our identity is this. Am I loved? And it's not a question in the life of a believer that's only resolved once. <laughs> this is why we eat regularly, over and over again. It is something that is affirmed over and over, again and again, through all the course of our living as believers. Am I loved? Affirmed over and over. We eat over and over. Because it resolves a question that is so critical to our existence. Am I loved? And we eat habitually the bread as a sign. When you hold the piece of bread in your hand, it is a sign that God has ordained to convince you of his love. Are you convinced? Do you need more? Do you need more evidence? Do you need more proof? Are you convinced that God loves you? We eat the bread habitually, continually, because our human heart needs continually the demonstration that yes, indeed, God has given the ultimate sign that he loves us. We don't eat to prove our love to God. We eat 
as God's proof to us that he has loved us, that he is loving us, and that he will always love us. And the body of our Lord is, listen to these two words, the body of our Lord is definitive and sufficient. Do you believe that? The body of our Lord is both definitive and sufficient, eternally sufficient to prove to us God's love and to heal all the diseases of our heart. As a psalmist says, he forgives all of our iniquities and heals all of our diseases. You know, my heart has diseases. Let me explain why this is so critical. I want you to see clearly how eating at this table corresponds to God's purposes for the human heart. Because if you don't understand it, it's not just going to happen magically. It's not a, a table where just something happens. You need to understand why we eat the bread. When we eat the bread, God, by his Holy Spirit, opens up, here's a visual for us, opens up our heart, it says in verse 4, just above where I read, opens up our heart and by his spirit pours into it the love of God. Imagine your, your heart is this vessel, is this container that, that, that God rips open and pours into it his love. It's a great visual of what God is doing when he offered up his son and he gives us his sign to eat the bread. You see, the human heart isn't just a clean, empty bucket. That vessel that God pours his love into it, it's not a, it's not a clean vessel. I remember as a kid visiting dairy farms. I grew up on a farm. We didn't have cows, but visiting dairy farms. And there was this paradox. You know, you're in a, you're in a cow barn, but it's also a milk barn. And so it's really smelly, but it's also really clean. And there was these buckets that they would squeeze the milk into back in the days when they did it that way. And everything was just spotlessly clean. Well, the human heart is not a clean bucket. The human heart is a place of contagion. It's a place of disease. And the reason that the love of God is poured into our heart is to heal the diseases that afflict our hearts. I hope you get that. That God doesn't need a place to store his love. <laughs> I got so much. What am I going to do with it? Well, I'll, 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 I'll put it here. I'll store it here. I'll store it in the human heart. Nice clean bucket. No, that's not why the scripture says that God rips our heart open and pours his love into our hearts. It's because it's a diseased bucket. There are places, our heart is a place that is deeply bruised and powerless in the grip of sin and full of disease. And the only hope for us is that God pours his love into our hearts and heals us of all that disease. And I hope you can see why that's so critical. You see, all of us here today really are, are the, the course and the path of our life is so much governed by the condition of our heart, isn't it? We either live out our diseases or we live out experiencing the healing of God. All of our thoughts, our, our relationships, our homes, our marriages, our character, our speech, all flow from the condition of our heart. And we desperately need to eat well. at this table and grasp how the meal corresponds to the need of our heart. So in, in, a, 
In a few words here in Romans 5, Paul declares this about the love of God poured into our hearts, that, that it's for sinners, not righteous people. And secondly, that it is a sure love that never fails for sinners. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. It, it addresses two of the greatest needs of our hearts, two of the, the greatest diseases of our hearts that so much affect our, our paths. The first one is pride, and the second one is insecurity. Diseases that lurk in our hearts and affect so much the way that we are towards God, towards others, and towards ourselves. And so to humble our pride, one of the diseases of our heart, Paul says this about the death of Christ, that it, that it came not at a time of human boasting, not a time of human strength, but rather in our state of weakness and powerlessness. It was not earned or purchased or secured by any human achievement to please God. Rather, it came at a time when we were, Paul says, ungodly. A fascinating word, isn't it? Ungodly. Ever think about that simple biblical word, ungodly? God is perfect. God is, God is perfection. He is, he is righteous. Ungodly. Ungodliness is being what God is not. Think about that for a moment. Ungodliness is being what God is not. And when we were being what God is not, Christ died for us. Not when we were being what God is, but when we were being what he is not. And our hearts should be deeply humbled by the love of God. Not only humbled, but also assured by God's love. Paul says that, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What God has chosen to be the definitive proof of God's love is a historical fact that can never be changed. Isn't that marvelous? It's not something that you're looking deep inside of you to say, to, to, to be constantly be wondering whether the love of God can be true, but it's a historical reality that can never be changed. The death of Christ. If there's one thing we need the helmet of salvation for and the shield of faith, it's, it's to stop the lying darts of the enemy that judge the love of God by how much we feel worthy of it. The love of God for us can only ever be judged by the death of Christ. It's not subject to any other judgment. Christ died for you. God loves you. You can as easily go back and change history as you can change the love of God. But there's a kind of spiritual irony here that is worked out in the life of a Christian. I see it in my own life all the time. 
the very thing that makes me doubt the love of God, my helplessness, my powerlessness, my weakness, my ungodliness, my being what God is not. You know, the things that I discover about myself as that I get older, and I marvel at the love of God, that God knew them before I ever discovered them, and he died for me. But here's the irony, that those things that make us doubt the love of God for, for us is the very condition that Paul declares us to be in when Christ died for us. Powerless. Helpless. Weak and ungodly. And that's why he says at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So Paul's words here aren't some abstract and theoretical language about the death of Christ. It, it all gets really practical very fast when we realize what a difference the love of God needs to make in our hearts. The heart that is humbled is a different heart. The heart that is assured, the heart that is secure in love is a different heart. The humble heart and the secure heart make their way in this world in a profoundly different way than a heart that is proud and a heart that is fearful. So this isn't just a ritual. It's actually how the Christian life works. Ever wonder, how does it, how does it work? It's part of how how the Christian life works. We, we eat regularly because we need these things declared to our hearts regularly. That it's not what we can do. It's about what God has done. And we eat the bread. Eat with faith. A symbol of the body of Christ that was substituted for powerless people. The purpose is to open up our hearts and pour in the love of God to heal the diseases that are there, particularly our pride and our insecurity that so profoundly affect the way that we walk in this world. Let's prepare to eat together. Those of you that are serving, would you please come as I pray? Lord, grant us the gift of repentance, I pray, as we hold and eat this bread. I pray that you would help us to repent of all of our pride, all of our foolishness, all of our doubting, all of our skepticism, and let you speak clearly to our hearts, to declare what you intend to be declared to us in all of its fullness and all of its richness, we pray in Jesus. Part two, we're going to pick, off, pick up right where uh, Pastor Barry left off. Um, one of the things that my wife and I struggle with, I wouldn't say most, but certainly a little bit, is finding out which movie we're going to watch whenever we decide to get together and, and watch a movie. We'll sometimes spend as much time flicking through the Netflix options as we will watching the movie itself. And I don't know if it's the mo most practical use of time, but one of the movies I like to watch the most is one I've seen before. Uh, I have a hard enough time finding movies I like, and so watching ones that I know I like are, it's an easy option for me. And so I often, I, I never tire of movies that I know are good because I've seen them before and I know I like them. When you see and hear something often enough, 
you're specifically in a movie, you're kind of caught in this tension, right, halfway through because you're, the movie pulls you in because that's what movies do. You're pulled right into the, the, this tension of, of the conflict and what's going to happen and what's going to happen to him and her and are they going to fall in love and will he jump off the building, will he not? But you can also rest a little bit because you know how it ends. You've seen it before. You know how the story ends. But the reason why you watch movies over and over again is because uh, it captivates you and it pulls in your awe. And I don't know about you, but every time I see something or hear something again and again, I'm, I'm always amazed and I marvel at new things. It pulls my awe right into the, the film, which is exactly what they're designed to do. The Good Friday account is one of those things that we need to hear over and over and over again. And as we do, as you read the account in all of the Gospels of what happened on the first Good Friday, it should cause the same kind of thing where you, you feel like you're making new discoveries each time. You're, you're overwhelmed by the past, the present, and the future power that this story, this account has. If the Gospel of Jesus, if his life and his, and his death and his resurrection truly has power, if it, if it transforms then it should make a difference in our lives, should it not? It should impact how you live yesterday, today, tomorrow, however many tomorrows you have. It should make a difference. It should impact how you live. It has implications on the life of the Christian and the life of the church. It changes the way you think of your, your sorrows, your grief, your despair, your trials. Let's pick up from Romans 5, starting in verse 9 through 10. Page 942, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of Jesus, by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This text is very appropriate. It's very pertinent because it tells us, it beautifully encompasses and it encapsulates the, the Easter uh, celebration. In these short four verses, it's very profound. It looks back at the cross, but it does more than that. It looks forward to the resurrection and the implications that it has for us as individual Christians, but also for us as a body of believers, the church of God. It gives us reason to persevere. It gives us hope, a living hope for, for each and every day and for the days that are to come. So what I want to do simply is this, over the next few moments, is to do that, is to look back and look, look forward, and just pointing out some obvious things that uh, Paul takes us through in this passage. He's very re reminded us from verse 8. It says that while we were still sinning, and the language there is that we were enemies of God. You're an enemy of God. Not because you did anything to make him mad, but because you're born into sin. You're corrupted. You're that diseased, contagious bucket that Barry spoke of. But while you are that way, while we are that way, Christ died for us. It says that we're objects of his wrath. You ever get mad at something or somebody? That word is how we're described. We are the objects of God's wrath. That's what we are uh, rightly do is God's wrath because of sin. But there's another word there, justified. And that's simply this. It's the removal of guilt. The guilt's been taken away. Christ took it for you. While you were still sinning, while I was still sinning, Christ died for you. You've been justified. 
You've also been reconciled. These are things that have happened in the past, what Christ did for us on the first Good Friday. You've been reconciled. It's not something that you've done, but it says that you've been reconciled by God. It was God who took initiative. You ever been in a conflict and you, you decide, I'm going to be the bigger man here. I'm going to take the high road. I'm going to initiate the reconciliation. Well, there's no high road for us. We're hopeless. We've been reconciled by God through Christ. There's no transaction. We didn't suddenly become a little bit better or clean up our act. It says that while we were sinners, Christ died. He took your place. And so the big point of the crucifixion and the broken body is that it's the defeat of death that was accomplished. And that depends on the cross. It's the defeat of death, which depends on the cross. Let's take a moment and look, look ahead, shall we? Now that we're no longer enemies, it says in verse 10, we will be saved from his wrath. We're not enemies anymore. We were, but we're not anymore. And we will be saved by his wrath. We're no longer the objects of his wrath. In fact, it says in other parts of the New Testament that we've been, we're no longer enemies. In fact, we're friends. We're friends of the king. And that reconciliation says that not only are we saved by Jesus' death, but that we're saved by his life. That much more. I hope you've read farther is that, that Jesus didn't stay dead. I hope that's not a surprise to you. You'll be saved by his life. The salvation that was started, which God initiated, it will be completed on his return. It's not done yet. It's finished. It's been accomplished. We know how the story ends. We've read the closing chapter. It's not done yet. It's not completed. It's not fulfilled yet. So whereas the death, the, 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 pardon me, the defeat of death that depended on the cross, the future and final victory depends on the resurrection. The story doesn't end here. You have been saved. You're being saved every day. But the Bible also uses language of you will be saved. It doesn't end at the, at the cross. It doesn't end with the, with, the, with the empty tomb. But it will be completed. You have been our being and will be saved. I can't stress enough the importance of not uncoupling the death from the resurrection. I mean, if Jesus stayed dead, this might as well be a funeral. But Good Friday is not a funeral. It's not a sad morning. We ought to wrestle with the weight and the grief and the despair that Jesus took on for us. Don't hear me wrong. But it's not a funeral. According to the Apostle Paul in other parts of the New Testament in 1 Corinthians, he says this, if it weren't for the resurrection, he says, your faith, our faith is in vain. Our preaching is a waste of time. He says, you're still in your sins, and we of all people are most to be pitied. We're foolish if Jesus wasn't resurrected. Shadrach Lockridge is a pastor who's been passed away for a number of years. He's an African-American pastor who pastored a church down in California. And I think he says it well, and I'll close with these words from one of his Good Friday sermons uh, multiple decades ago. He says, it's Friday. The earth trembles, the sky grows dark. My king yields his spirit. It's Friday. Hope is lost, death has won, sin has conquered, and Satan's just a laughing. It's Friday, Jesus was buried 
a soldier stands guard and a rock is rolled into place. But it's Friday. It's only Friday. And Sunday's a coming. Right? Please hear these words of the psalmist as we go from here. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures. How long? Forever. Forever. Amen. Praise the Lord. Have a blessed day.